0: I invite you to open your copy of God's Word, the Book of James. In James chapter 1, we'll be reading the entire chapter of James chapter 1 this morning. And I'll be reading out the New King James Version. as my custom. I'm going to turn this microphone on right now. Prepare yourselves. James chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 27. invite you to follow along with me as we read. God's Word declares, James... A bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brother, encounter all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and talked by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower fails, and its beauty Beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brethren, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, Slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless, pure, and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Well, I think one of the things we look forward to and strive for every Christmas is to find that perfect gift. Right? We have that person we love in our heart and our mind. We put our attention to trying to think of what we could present them with that would bring a a measure of joy and happiness to them on Christmas morning. This week I spent a lot of time shopping. I took, I went with Scott, I went with Valerie, I went with Joyce. I heard multiple times, that's a lame gift. None of us want to buy lame gifts for our loved ones. But the problem is, is that every gift that you go to a store to buy is a lame one. And today we're going to talk about gifts. And that's really the focal point of this uh, celebration, this season, because we're really celebrating a gift from God, His gift to us. And we look at an expression of reciprocation by the Magi, and we're going to be talking about them this morning, of them bringing gifts to the Christ child in the house there. And that's really how we determined uh, this period of time to celebrate our Christ's birth. We aren't real sure when he was born. It was not likely he was born in December at all. Um, but we do know to, with some uh, measure of, of uh, certainty that it was in this time frame that the Magi arrived. In fact, um, that's really why we set up this period of time to celebrate Christ's birth, which doesn't culminate on December 25th. It's supposed to begin on December 25th. And uh, it's unfortunate that we have kind of reversed it all around, and um, we culminate our celebration really when we should just be initiating our celebration. Uh, It begins on the 25th. We're really supposed to go for 12 days following that into January, And it is really a celebration, not so much of Christ's birth, as the arrival of the Magi. As they arrived in Jerusalem, looking for the King of the Jews, the one born King of the Jews, the one who has that right, not by Roman declaration, not by Caesar's determination, but rather um, was born that way, um, and the heavens declare it, and And it is known throughout all the world, even outside of the Roman Empire, that those who are really searching, looking for it, um, can identify that this certainly is this individual. They arrived in Jerusalem, of course. You are well familiar with the story. And uh, Herod was very distraught, called the religious leaders. They come in with their books, the scribes, and they are very capable of finding the passages that... Tell them exactly where to go. Oh, you need to go down to Bethlehem. And they had all the information, they had all the all that proper knowledge, um, but interestingly enough, none of them went down to worship Jesus. And don't confuse the knowledge about with belief in. That's extremely dangerous. Um, and it leaves you in a condition of Herod and the leaders around him there in Jerusalem, who could direct others. They could even direct foreigners to what they should be doing and where they should be going. Um, but they themselves did not participate in the worship. They had full knowledge. They had access to the scriptures. They understood the scriptures. They understood that these are the scriptures that need to be fulfilled by the one coming, the root of David, the the lion of the tribe of Judah, the. Uh, Messiah, the Deliverer. They could go to the passages, the prophetic word, they knew what they meant, and they knew directly where to send them, but they didn't believe enough to follow and worship with the Magi. So first of all, we don't want to confuse knowledge about with belief in. And you're going to encounter a lot of people who have uh, a knowledge about what's going on right now. In our celebration of its core, of really its origins, and uh, but not belief in. It always disturbs me when I go to concerts and things and I think about what these people are singing that they don't really believe in. Especially when they get to the Alleluia chorus of Handel's Messiah and it's a professional or semi professional choir singing, and and you know that by and large, most of them are not believers in what they are singing about. And we want to be of a different ilk, we want to be of a different nature, we want to be those who believe in, and we're going to talk about what it means to really believe in this gift of God towards us, in this time we celebrate by gift giving, um, that was really set up for us by by the Magi, it was really, there are examples, um, secondary to Christ, to God's gift to us of the Messiah or the Magi's gifts to the Christ child. And I'm going to talk about why it's so important that we identify with them more than with the shepherds. So we find this uh, evidence that there is a need to celebrate this. To celebrate it not just with Knowledge and not just with the accoutrements of this world, but in fact with belief in this gift of God, this One who came, uh, who is, according to the angel's declaration, peace on earth. Not an event, not a quality, but rather a person that He who came to bring peace of a nature that is unknown really in our time and there's no mistake as we go through the, the letters of the apostles that we find them regularly describing that peace be upon you God's peace in addition to God's grace but they rehearse that again and again that this is what our, our interest is for you this is what we desire for you to have as a quality having mixed faith with knowledge to trust in Christ Well, we find that to really celebrate gift-giving takes a different heart. It's a heart that doesn't seek one's own, but seeks others to consider their needs or their interests or their wants. And, And I'm going to explain to you just very briefly why it is so hard for you to do Christmas shopping. And it's because the people you're trying to shop for have almost nothing that they need. That's the problem. It really is. In this country. If I were to go Christmas shopping in um, for another people, another land, I would have no problem at all. I just... You can see immediately their needs. But our difficulty here and why we scramble and shop and look and examine and consider and scratch our heads and, and wring our hands is because... Really, we have no needs. We are in such an affluent environment that we look around and we and we say, "Well I really don't need anything. What do you want for Christmas? Well, what do i I don't need anything. I guess that little bobble over there is kind of fun, or that's kind of attractive, or that's something that maybe I'll wear once or one time a year and so The merchandising world knows this. They know that Americans really have no needs that are unmet substantially. And so they create interest in things, and in accessories. That's what they call them. Accessories. You know what accessories are? They're just packaging. They're just, you don't really need them. They're just things that the marketing world has convinced you that it will somehow help you and make it even work better or look better. Um, something like that, and they accessorize. Doing everything they can to get you to find that thing that will catch your eye, either because of its color style or whatever, eh, to get you to buy that, thinking that that will be the perfect gift for that one you love who doesn't need anything. And that's why Americans are extraordinarily difficult to buy anything for. Because we have so little need. So we come into a time when we're looking for the perfect gift. We have an example for us in God's word of that perfect gift, Jesus Christ. And we see the substance of it that it cost him everything. We are reminded of David's statement that I will not offer to God something that cost me nothing. But we have an opportunity to share in the costs of salvation with Jesus Christ. Even as we have an opportunity to share in the giving of that precious gift of Jesus Christ. And this is where I want to really draw us to and we're going to take somewhat of a circuitous route to get there. But I want to lay that out before you. That that is where I I want us to capture, is that we have an opportunity to share in the cost. You might say, well, what was the cost? The cost for our salvation was the suffering of our Lord. And the Bible tells us that we are to fill up or complete or finish our Lord's suffering. That we can share in it. We've been studying in the book of Acts how the apostles and, and, and how the early church was participating in that costliness. We just got done studying the death of, of one, of James. Not the James of the passage we had before us, but of John's brother. James and John, the sons of thunder. The imprisonment of Peter, and this comes after they had gotten through the persecution initiated by Saul, after they had endured the beatings by the, by the scribes and Pharisees, after they had gone through all of that, um, we, we still see them rejoicing. That they are counted worthy of participating in the sufferings of Christ. That is, that they got to share in the cost of, of salvation coming to men. When I was a young man, and we had very little, um, and so gift-giving was a little difficult, um, we would often get together and buy gifts together. That is, all the kids would buy one gift, and we'd all chip in what we could into the price of that thing for uh, mom or for dad. Uh, later on, as we got older, we uh, were still pretty tight, college students, things like that. And uh, we would just exchange gifts, and, and just so each one only had to buy one gift and not a gift for every person in the family um, because means were tight. And so we, we took those measures. But when we participate in buying one together, we shared in that cost and we and we bring it before as a gift from us. Ultimately, interestingly enough, all the money pretty much that bought those gifts came from mom and dad. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So we pool our allowances or what we earned doing chores around the house that came from mom and dad. We pool them together to buy a gift for mom and dad, which is kind of funny. Um, but, uh, so we used their money to buy them a gift um, and worked, and we worked in the between. But we got to share in this. And, and we recognized that we didn't bring, that we really, that the funds, uh, I, I know I had a paper route and my brothers and sisters had other things too. But um, we recognized that, that we had a lesser part in this, that, that there was five kids and mine was the least compared to those four. And yes, ours is the lesser amount compared to what Christ has suffered to bring this wonderful gift of God to mankind, but it is still an element of it that we have the privilege of sharing in. If we recognize our role in the giving of gifts, that perfect gift that James talks about, I invite you to turn again to James chapter 1. We see that we are told about suffering. And we are told in verse 2 to count it all joy when you fall into various testing and, and trials, that it produces some good things in us and that, um, that God is still giving us these gifts, uh, particularly wisdom, but that we have an expectation that we are going to have and share in the sufferings of Christ and that we should count that as a joyful thing and not a thing to complain about, not a thing to mumble about, not a thing to become embittered over, but rather a thing to rejoice in, that we get to share in the cost of the greatest gift to man. A significant gift, the perfect gift of God. We get to share in the cost of that. We get a part, a role. We get to, to participate in it. That as we have received this wonderful gift from God ourselves, we get to re gift it to someone else. We get to participate in that. And it says, as we're doing that, we're going to engage opposition. We're going to see, we're going to see that. And, we're, and, and there's going to be a facet of suffering involved. There's a costliness to us as we share in Christ's sacrifice sharing it with others, seeking to give them this greatest gift, we recognize that we are sharing in the cost. And that gives us a level, a degree of ownership and so when Paul talks about sharing Christ with others, when he writes his letters to the Corinthians and to the Galatians and to the Ephesians and to the Philippians and to the Colossians, when he writes these letters to all these people, he, he calls them his own. His, his, and John, when he writes his letters, you're my little children. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, you're my, you're my pride, you're my boast, you're my joy. You're the one. I get to, I, I shared in the cost. Granted, what I put in was very small. But I got to share in that cost of bringing you salvation. This greatest gift. And so, we have an opportunity to share in the price. And the greatest gift that we can give uh, in this world is, hasn't changed for 2,000 years. It is still Christ. It is the greatest gift. For it is the only perfect gift that we really have to share. In James chapter 1, verse 16, says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. And I want to just share with you that many of us have been deceived about gifts. Somehow we can, by our own energies and resources, find that perfect gift And that is a deception of the world. There's nothing in this world that can bring deliverance, real peace, real joy, real contentment, real love. There's none of any store that you're going to enter that's going to accomplish that. And we find in verse 17, after this warning, Don't be deceived, my beloved and brother. It says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Well, what does that mean? Well, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. And the idea that we are the first fruits point to the fact that we that that we are expected to bring forth further fruit. We are supposed to bear fruit, John tells us in John 15. You're by to me. My teens have been learning that, and I... And, You're going to bear fruit. That's the evidence. That's the substance. That you're abiding in Christ. What is that fruitfulness? We're the first fruits of salvation. We're the first fruits. And it is by the word of truth that we bring people to Christ. That this is the means. This is an aspect of that perfect gift of God is when you bring God's word before people. In your life, by your lips and your conversation and your manner of living, and your and your attitude, um, in your spirit, in your attitude, in your countenance, all of that, that we present people with the word of truth to bring them that perfect gift. That the only real gifts that are worth giving, you can't really put under a tree. And so the expectation of God is that we be gift givers. The Magi, again, are our examples. And I want to share with you why I particularly focus on the Magi more than the shepherds. Um, because I think we fit into that group better. Not just because we're wealthy and they're wealthy. Um, it really wasn't what I had in mind at all. Um, but rather... Because we come to Christ as foreigners. The Bible says we're grafted in. We don't really have claim to the, to the trunk and to the roots. We, we don't have claim to that. We who are not of Israel are grafted in and, and for that reason we have uh, just further reason to be full of thanksgiving and, and rejoice in that. And also we're given warnings that if the Natural branches can be broken off. Beware. You do not take Christ for granted, but abide in Him. Strengthened in that. But we find these Magi. And, by the way, you, you know that who these guys are. I'm pretty sure. We don't know exactly how many. We know there are three kinds of gifts, but we only really know how many were involved in this. Um, we, we say three because there are three gifts. Um, that really designate the three aspects of Christ from, from his royalty all the way through his sacrifice and his priestly and prophetic role as well. Um, I find that wrapped up in some of the meeting of there. But I want to focus on who these men were. Um, these were the wives of another land, outside of Israel, perhaps even outside or on the very fringes of the Roman Empire. Um, we get the word magician, magic, magical from the word magi. Now, that doesn't mean these were magicians and wizards. Um, we have applied that to that. Um, in fact, if we were to describe these and write this in modern terms, uh, we would call them three scientists from the East showed up. They're men who studied their world. They have studied the properties both of of of, of the elements of the earth. Uh, they, they studied the properties of the heavens. They, they were time uh, gurus. They were into the stars. They were into how things work. They want to know how things work. And they built up knowledge in the Babylonian period. These were called the Chaldeans. Those that were, that were students of, of the sci- what we would call today the sciences, and all science means is knowledge. They're seeking to capture knowledge. And in their study, in their examination, in their in their working out the charts of the heavens, they came to a conclusion that something extraordinary was going on in the land of Israel. They had the history, they knew background of of what went on way back there, all the way back to Hezekiah's time and the movement of the stars in an unnatural way, which told them that some divine was involved and they traveled. The Babylonians, of course, traveled. Chaldeans traveled to Hezekiah to, (laughs) if your God can move the heavens and change the courses of the stars, we want to get to know Him. And they take that information back with them. And this becomes part of the body of knowledge, of science in the Eastern lands. And these scientists, having studied this out and recognizing that that working of what's going on in the heavens is calling them to participate in a wonderful event that is going on that is of enormous, not just global application, but, but of all time. This is an event that, that we're not going to miss out on because we have the, not only the knowledge, we have the, the means to participate in this, to go and, and be a part of this enormous event that is going to transform the world and all history. We get a chance to participate in it, and we're going to lay hold of that. And these strangers who are not part of Israel, from all that we know, they are, they don't, they're, they're foreigners. They're not the religious elite. They, they don't have every prophecy in the scriptures before them. They are students of their world. And having studied the world, they come to a conclusion. And I've got to tell you, we've got some, some guys that are studying the world and starting to realize, this evolution thing just doesn't work. And uh, they don't want to acknowledge that there's a God in creation, but they're starting to recognize that evolution just doesn't work. The more we study the world, the more it doesn't fit. Because if they're honestly looking for knowledge of this world... Um, the Bible tells that they have to conclude that there is a God. It, it leads to him. His, his attributes are clearly seen. There are evidence there. So these men were students of their world, and, but they recognized that this is the place they needed to be, and they show up in the wrong place. <laughs> right vicinity. They're in the right vicinity. Wrong place. They go to Jerusalem, the capital. Where else would you find a king? Right? They're laden down with their camels of gifts, and or maybe elephants. If they came from India, they'd probably ride in elephants. Where is he? We're late. We're, we're, we're kind of the last on the scene. We're coming from a long ways away. Where is he? You certainly have already identified him. You're already celebrating him. You're already... We're late on the scene. And brethren, as Gentiles, we've studied the book of Acts. We've seen that it went to the Jews first. It was on the Solomon's porch, on the Temple Mount, that all of those who were of Israel were coming to Christ by the thousands. And we, and we saw that it, it was a lot of work to get the gospel out, and deliberate work by Christ to get them to think that I have others. That I want to reach with Christ's message. They didn't just come for the Israel, he came for all men. And these were late arrivers, thinking that everyone else had already worked it all out. After all, they didn't have God's word, they had their study of the world, the universe, and their study of the sciences, of astronomy. I gotta make sure I say it not astrology. Astronomy. They had, they had studied it out. They had seen it. They're late on the scene. Where is he? And so are we. Late. We are... The book of James really is written to the twelve tribes, it says. It says they're the first fruits, and we come after them. And we join in and we are late arrivers. And we're really foreigners. We are grafted in. And yet we have opportunity to celebrate the Christ child. And this is really what we're celebrating for 12 days. Starting the 25th and moving forward. Historically, you never put up your Christmas tree until Christmas Eve. And I was going to really brag on Mr. Roberts who's going to do that this year and then he put it up yesterday. Historically, Christmas Eve is when you started making preparations. You put up your tree because you're getting ready to celebrate the gift-giving of God to man, but of man to God. We begin that celebration recognizing the late arrival of the Magi. And the Process of them heading into Jerusalem, waiting for them to look around, then heading down to Bethlehem, participating in the worship, and then being told, get out of town, go a different way, do not tell anybody up there in Jerusalem what's going on. And so that whole process is really what we're celebrating is that facet of it, the part that we, I think, are more identified with. Because we are the strangers who have no... Uh, birthright to this. Yeah you know, we come recognizing Jesus as our King, as our sacrifice, is the one that we're going to give all allegiance to. These men had their leaders, they had their their kings, their Caesars. They said, no, compared to this one, this is where all of our loyalty needs to be. For this is one has that divine about him. And so they bring their gifts. And ultimately, our exchange of gifts is really not only a picture of Christ's perfect gift from God to us, but to celebrate this facet of our giving back to God by serving one another, by participating... First and foremost, in the sufferings of Christ, sharing with the perfect gift of God with one another, with the world. This is the greatest gift-giving there is, to call the world to Christ. We are preparing to enter into Acts chapter 13, in our morning study, and I was really debating whether to switch these two sermons, and, but you would not feel comfortable having a Christmas sermon after Christmas when it should have been done, during the Christmas season of those 12 days, from the 25th till what would that be, the 5th or something? 6th? You're getting ready to study the churches determined by leading of the Holy Spirit, by prayer, to participate in the giving of the gospel to the world. We find in the church of Antioch a handful of men. All of them willing and ready. And God says, I'll take those two. Send them. And Antioch's great gift to the world was that they sent out two of their best, Paul and Barnabas, and sent them and and recognized that While we can benefit greatly from these men, um, it is of much greater value for them to go forth throughout the entire Roman Empire and share this good and perfect gift from God. And so as a church, they sent them out, their best, their brightest, to share Christ, this great gift, with all men. And so it stands today. The greatest gift giving, the perfect gift, is the gospel. It's to participate in the sufferings of Christ while sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with all those around us. This is a good gift. This is a perfect gift. All others are insignificant in comparison. They're lame. All other gifts are lame. When compared and contrasted against this gift, that we have a privilege of participating. Late arrivers, yes. But we come recognizing that this one is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This one will be the Messiah, the Deliverer, not just of the Jews, but of all men. He is born King of the Jews. But we recognize that within the context that I have an opportunity to, to celebrate that and to, to participate in it by receiving from Him salvation and then sharing it with others. James describes this as doing the Word. We were recipients of the Word of Truth and brought us into uh, that by some other. Someone shared Christ with us. Somebody gave that gift to us and we are now called upon to re-gift. Re-gifting is great, isn't it? See, we've made it sound kind of bad, but it really isn't. We are called upon not just to think about it, but to participate in it. And James, I believe, well tied to this whole principle. We are called upon to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And again, we are called back in verse 22 to that same thing that he starts off with in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brethren. And he comes back to that theme in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. that the world certainly desires to deceive us into following what they think it all means and what they think it's all about. Um, but, and, and we recognize that hazard to some degree, not probably as much as we need to, but one of them that we are almost totally blinded to is that much of the deception of our celebration of Christ and of our participation in His kingdom is our own deception. That if we hear it, it's enough. It's enough. Even if we hear it from our own mouths, we somehow think that it's a good enough witness to go around and tell people Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays, and we do this on our back. Um, that's pretty good, you know. You wish people Merry Christmas, pat yourself on the back instead of Happy Holidays or Season's Greetings or I don't know why we don't think it Happy Holy Days is a good thing to say, but because they're holy days set apart. we celebrate ourselves for saying that and we think that's significant when we really haven't done anything to share the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So James warns us, don't deceive yourself into thinking that that's enough. You're just hearers only. If you do not put feet on this truth that you are a recipient of God's gift, you have an opportunity to participate with Him in the cost of it by suffering, if necessary, to make sure that others get that. And did you ever? We often think of the costliness of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that the Magi brought, but we don't often think of the costliness to them to bring it, the process of getting it to Jerusalem. Whether their trip was weeks or measured in months, that process itself was a dangerous one to some degree a costly one. And we are called to be doers of the word, to participate in that cost, that process where God, uh, exemplified by God humbling himself and becoming man and dwelling among us. And there's a certain extent of costliness for us to bring the gospel to people, to humble ourselves, and to go out there and share Christ with those that we might in the back of our minds and maybe in the forefront of our minds think, they are not worthy. Well, neither were you. And neither was I. Thank God for someone who was willing to bear the cost to bring me the gospel. And oh, that we would be doers of the word. Verse 25 says that if we are the ones who do, And I like verse 25 because I think it compares to the Magi's work. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty continues in it. And is not forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. You look into it. You study it out. You consider it. You obey it. You don't ever forget Because you're doing it every day, it's not something you're likely to forget. It says you'll be blessed in what you do. For all that travel time, those Magi who had studied this out and had made that consideration, had done that examination, said we are not going to let this pass without us being involved in it. We're not going to miss this chance, this opportunity that we see and that, as far as they're concerned, everyone on earth should have seen it. The celestial event. Everyone on earth should have figured out that they were just looking and humble enough to <laughs> invest themselves in the exorbitant expense and, and work of getting there. To be able to be there for the Christ child. But these went... However many there were. And they arrive, and, they're, and they are all along this trip remembering why they're traveling. Why is it easy to remember? Because they're on a trip. It's a lot easier to remember while you're going. Now, some of you have got early Alzheimer's like me, and you're walking somewhere to do something you forget on the way. Why was I in this room? I came back here for something. Um... But that's rare, right? When we're on our way and we're really uh, focused in our attention and we're actively involved, um, it's hard to forget. Why am I doing this again? But yes, sometimes we do. Often because we become distracted or we begin to deceive ourselves. So it says, be obedient. Stay in the Word, yes, and hear it, absolutely. But don't just hear it. Do it. do it faithfully, consistently. It says that they never forget because they're continuously doing that this will be a blessed state. And so we need to mix obedience with our I believe in Jesus and our gift giving is really ultimate, the doing of God's work on behalf of men. But we also have to do it in a certain way. And this really brings us to the last verse of our passage that really describes what it means to be a Christian, to be in re- true religion. And that word's gotten kind of a bad rap lately and people say, I'm not religious, I'm a Christian. Um, because religion, they associate with a group of rites and, and things like that and empty uh, patterns of activity so-called worship, um, but the Bible uses this word. Uh, Old English uses this word, religion, in a very positive way. Uh, verse twenty-seven says, "Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their trouble." And we find that, to some degree, at least once a year, the world kind of participates in that. I often wondered. How the food banks and homeless shelters manage the rest of the year. I'm sure they inundated with overwhelming support from Thanksgiving till Christmas, but I always wonder what happens after that, don't you? We care for orphans and widows in their trouble. And we hear that often, and, and we focus on that to the extent we can here, and we talk about that, but it's only the first half. That's the active part that we can see and we we can measure. But then there's the second half of pure religion. So as an expression of what kind of activity does it mean to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only? Well, he's going to share with you um, that if you want to look in your philanthropic activity, it's caring for orphans and widows in their trouble. That's one half. That's the physical half. That's the half that uh, that we think of as activity. Um, But then there's another entire half. Not a third, a half. And that is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. As we participate in paying the cost of salvation, of the greatest gift of God to man. As we participate in that that process of giving that out, of obeying and being doers of the word, of sharing the word of truth with others. As we participate in the call to participate in the process, that we must also participate in the purity. We are undefiled in our faith. What does that mean? That's defined for us to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And um, this phrase has always bothers me. It always convicts me, to tell you the truth. Um, because I find when I examine my life, I find spots, I find splatter from the world. Generally speaking, the believer has been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and we are, we are cleansed, and, and we have these beautiful white garments. <laughs> and we are called to be holy as God is holy. We are called to that kind of obedience, an obedience that, is, that, it, that doesn't even view obedience as the hard thing. It's just uh, the minimum. Um, when I've done everything, it's just my duty to do. When I'm an unprofitable servant, Luke says. Um, in John, it says that I'm going to obey with... Um, uh, that 's not even burdensome it 's a joy to obey God, and we have these beautiful, fresh, clean spiritual garments, and then we start staining them we start spotting them and they are stains they really there's no detergent on earth that can remove them, uh, no determination of your heart or your mind that can that can uh, Eliminate them. It's really only again Christ that can do that, which is why John says you have to confess those sins. He's the only one that made you white. He's the only one that can that can remove those spottedness. But we are called to be unspotted from the world. That is, that as we engage the world with these gifts, that we do not participate with them in their activity, which is against God. And again, I want to take us to the Magi. They come into Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And he create a stir. When a caravan of, maybe elephants instead of camels, maybe camels, but a, a caravan of magi come in loaded down with gifts and want to know the one born king of the Jews, not the one who was assigned king of the Jews by Caesar, um, it's creating quite a stir. They get in there, and I'm sure that they had some meals and they had some conversations, and finally they bring in the information from the, the scrolls. They, they know where to look. They find it. They give it to them. They're headed out there told, oh, when you find Him, this is the spotting of the world. You ready? When you find Him, let us know so we can worship Him too. Sounds really good, doesn't it? But it was a lie. They had no intention of worshiping him. They wanted to kill him. The Magi go down and they worship. And interesting, nobody went with them. Nobody thought to accompany them. Uh, They go down and, and they worship him. And then they receive this warning from God. Do not go back to them. Those who know but don't believe. Those have all the advantages. They had the advantages not only of what you had to get you here, that is the evidences I've put in the heavens and on earth, they have those advantages. They also have the advantages of the Word of God before them that they clearly know and are capable of handling, to be able to direct the Magi to where they need to go. Don't you go back to them because they have never mixed faith with their knowledge. These are the kind that Christ said were whitewashed sepulchers. They were dead men. They were the blind, leading the blind. And God says, don't you go back. Go home a different way. (laughs) Stay unspotted. Stay unspotted. Stay unspotted. And here in James, the spottedness from the world is really empty faith. Again, useless faith is useless religion, is what James says in verse 26. You can't bridle your tongue, you can't control your speech, um, and you say you believe in God, you can't even handle the smallest little one of the small little organs of your body. Um, You're Faith is your religion's useless. You're deceiving yourself. We're called to be unspotted from the world. That we don't even allow the splatter onto us as we bring them the gospel. That we're not going to let them come in and Dictate or determine our worship of the one holy God. We are not going to go to them and say, well, how would you like our Christmas service to be like to get you in the door? But rather, we're going to maintain this pure, undefiled practice of our faith called religion. That's what religion is, the practice of faith. We're going to practice this at, determined not by what the world wants it to look like or be like, but rather what God desires us to be and what he desires and calls us to be, and that is to be doers of the word. Impurity, with, without defilement. That we use these tools of worship not as the world would as God calls us to. You see, all those leaders in Jerusalem had access to all the information on how to worship God. They had access to it. They studied it from youth on. They memorized significant portions of it. But their religion was useless. Useless. they never allowed it to lead them to worship the Messiah, the one true and living God so we are called to have pure religious practice and that is to keep unspotted from the world that we bring into our gift giving not the world's ideas but God's ideas That when we start counting the cost of things, the one thing that we will never count the cost of because it is a joy to pay is to share Christ with others. To participate in the cost of salvation. To join Christ in humbling ourselves. And giving everything, if necessary, that others might receive him a Savior and Lord. I have answered several young people over the years who asked me how much it takes to become a pastor or to become a missionary. Mostly missionary in my missionary days when I was traveling speaking in in camps and churches and well and I would it costs you everything and you're glad to pay it. How much does it take to go to Haiti? Everything. How much does it cost to go to Peru? Everything. Something many of our mission boards have lost track of, I think, over the years. But many of our Christians and our churches have lost track of that costliness too. Because we don't see our the gift of God and the fact that Christ gave everything as our model. But Rather, we're looking at the Models of this world and letting them spot us, splatter us. And James tells us that that's not true religion. Stand spotted from the world, participate in the process of the greatest gift giving known to man as you give gifts of this material world, like gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as you give those material gifts, recognize that they are really just symbolic. They're not really the purpose. They're not the fullness of our celebration. That the real fullness of our celebration might be here in this room, Christmas Eve. In a time of worship and celebration of the greatest gift. But participate in that. But recognize that those aren't perfect gifts. That those are all lame gifts. (laughs) That they're reminder gifts of the gift you have received and the gift you are called to give to others. And be ready to join Christ in paying part of the cost. A small part, but still part of the cost of that precious gift, perfect gift that is from above. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the privilege we have this season to celebrate your coming. And Lord, we want to celebrate not as the world does, but as the Magi did. Certainly, with our material things, we want to celebrate your coming, and we have and will and will continue to do that. But Lord, we want your help that this doesn't become a spot in our religion. that we have them understood as just symbolic of that one gift, that perfect gift. You've called upon us to give to all men. Even as your Son has come. To make that gift available to all who would call upon your name. Thank you so much for that beautiful name, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.